Section fourteen of three essays on religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Three essays on religion by John Stuart Mill. Theism, section six. Part three. Immortality. The indications of immortality may be considered in two divisions those which are independent of any theory respecting the creator and his intentions and those which depend upon an antecedent belief on that subject of the former class of arguments speculative men have in different ages put forward a considerable variety of which those in the phaedon of plato are an example but they are for the most part such as have no adherence and need not be seriously refuted now they are generally founded upon preconceived theories as to the nature of the thinking principle in man considered as distinct and separable from the body and on other preconceived theories respecting death as for example that death or dissolution is always a separation of parts and the soul being without parts being simple and indivisible is not susceptible of this separation curiously enough one of the interlocutors in the phaedon anticipates the answer by which an objector of the present day would meet this argument namely that thought and consciousness though mentally distinguishable from the body may not be a substance separable from it but a result of it standing in relation to it the illustration is plato's like that of a tune to the musical instrument on which it is played and that the arguments used to prove that the soul does not die with the body would equally prove that the tune does not die with the instrument but survives its destruction and continues to exist apart in fact those moderns who dispute the evidences of the immortality of the soul do not in general believe the soul to be a substance per se but regard it as the name of a bundle of attributes the attributes of feeling thinking reasoning believing willing etc and these attributes they regard as a consequence of the bodily organization which therefore they argue it is as unreasonable to suppose surviving when that organization is dispersed as to suppose the colour or odour of a rose surviving when the rose itself has perished those therefore who would deduce the immortality of the soul from its own nature have first to prove that the attributes in question are not attributes of the body but of a separate substance now what is the verdict of science on this point it is not perfectly conclusive either way in the first place it does not prove experimentally that any mode of organization has the power of producing feeling or thought to make that proof good it would be necessary that we should be able to produce an organism and try whether it would feel which we cannot do organisms cannot by any human means be produced they can only be developed out of a previous organism on the other hand the evidence is well nigh complete that all thought and feeling has some action of the bodily organism for its immediate antecedent or accompaniment that the specific variations and especially the different degrees of complication of the nervous and cerebral organization correspond to differences in the development of the mental faculties and though we have no evidence except negative that the mental consciousness ceases forever when the functions of the brain are at an end we do know that disease of the brain disturb the mental functions and that decay or weakness of the brain enfeebles them we have therefore sufficient evidence that cerebral action is if not the cause at least in our present state of existence a condition sine qua non of mental operation and that assuming the mind to be a distinct substance 
its separation from the body would not be as some have vainly flattered themselves and liberation from trammels and restoration to freedom but would simply put a stop to its functions and remand it to unconsciousness unless and until some other set of conditions supervenes capable of recalling it into activity but of the existence of which experience does not give us the smallest indication at the same time it is of importance to remark that these considerations only amount to defect of evidence they afford no positive argument against immortality we must beware of giving a priori validity to the conclusions of an a posteriori philosophy the root of all a priori thinking is that tendency to transfer to outward things a strong association between the corresponding ideas in our own minds and the thinkers who most sincerely attempt to limit their beliefs by experience and honestly believe that they do so are not always sufficiently on their guard against this mistake there are thinkers who regard it as truth of reason that miracles are impossible and in like manner there are others who believe the phenomena of life and consciousness are associated in their minds by undeviating experience with the action of material organs think it an absurdity per se to imagine it possible that those phenomena can exist under any other conditions but they should remember that the uniform coexistence of one fact with another does not make the one fact a part of the other or the same with it the relation of thought to a material brain is no metaphysical necessity but simply a constant coexistence within the limits of observation and when analyzed to the bottom on the principles of the associative psychology the brain just as much as the mental functions is like matter itself merely a set of human sensations either actual or inferred as possible namely those which the anatomist has when he opens the skull and the impressions which we suppose we should receive of molecular or some other movements when the cerebral activity was going on if there were no bony envelope and our senses or our instruments were sufficiently delicate experience furnishes us with no example of any series of states of consciousness without this group of contingent sensations attached to it but it is as easy to imagine such a series of states without as with this accompaniment and we know of no reason in the nature of things against the possibility of its being thus disjoined we may suppose that the same thoughts emotions volitions and even sensations which we have here may persist or recommence somewhere else under other conditions just as we may suppose that other thoughts and sensations may exist under other conditions in other parts of the universe and in entertaining this supposition we need not be embarrassed by any metaphysical difficulties about a thinking substance substance is but a general name for the perdurability of attributes wherever there is a series of thoughts connected together by memories that constitutes a thinking substance this absolute distinction in thought and separability in representation of our states of consciousness from the set of conditions with which they are united only by constancy of co-committance is equivalent in a practical point of view to the old distinction of the two substances matter and mind there is therefore in science no evidence against the immortality of the soul but that negative evidence which consists in the absence of evidence in its favour and even the negative evidence is not so strong as negative evidence often is in the case of witchcraft for instance the fact that there is no proof which will stand examination of its having ever existed is as conclusive as the most positive evidence of its non-existence would be 
for it exists if it does exist on this earth where if it had existed the evidence of fact would certainly have been available to prove it but it is not so as to the soul's existence after death that it does not remain on earth and go about visibly or interfere in the events of life is proved by the same weight of evidence which disproves witchcraft but that it does not exist elsewhere there is absolutely no proof a very faint if any presumption is all that is afforded by its disappearance from the surface of this planet some may think that there is an additional and very strong presumption against the immortality of the thinking and conscious principle from the analysis of all the other objects of nature all things in nature perish the most beautiful and perfect being as philosophers and poets alike complain the most perishable a flower of the most exquisite form and colouring grows up from a root comes to perfection in weeks or months and lasts only a few hours or days why should it be otherwise with man why indeed but why also should it not be otherwise feeling and thought are not merely different from what we call inanimate matter but are the opposite pole of existence and analogical inference has little or no validity from the one to the other feeling and thought are much more real than anything else they are the only things which we directly know to be real all things else being merely the unknown conditions on which these in our present state of existence or in some other depend all matter apart from the feelings of sentient beings has but an hypothetical and unsubstantial existence it is a mere assumption to account for our sensations itself we do not perceive we are not conscious of it but only the sensations which we are said to receive from it in reality it is a mere name for our expectation of sensations or for our belief that we can have certain sensations when certain other sensations give indications of them because these contingent possibilities of sensation sooner or later come to an end and give place to others is it implied in this that the series of our feelings must itself be broken off this would not be to reason from one kind of substantive reality to another but to draw from something which has no reality except in reference to something else conclusions applicable to that which is only substantive reality mind or whatever name we give to what is implied in consciousness of a continued series of feelings is in a philosophical point of view the only reality of which we have any evidence and no analogy can be recognized or comparison made between it and other realities because there are no other known realities to compare it with that is quite consistent with its being perishable but the question whether it is so or not is res integra untouched by any of the results of human knowledge and experience the case is one of those very rare cases in which there is really a total absence of evidence on either side in which the absence of evidence for the affirmative does not as in so many cases it does create a strong presumption in favour of the negative the belief however in human immortality in the minds of mankind generally is probably not grounded on any scientific arguments either physical or metaphysical but on foundations with most minds much stronger namely on one hand the disagreeableness of giving up existence to those at least to whom it has hitherto been pleasant and on the other the general traditions of mankind the natural tendency of belief to follow these two inducements our own wishes and the general assent of other people has been in this instance reinforced by the utmost exertion 
of the power of public and private teaching rulers and instructors have at all times with the view of getting greater effect to their mandates whether from selfish or from public motives encouraged to the utmost of their power the belief that there is a life after death in which pleasures and sufferings far greater than on earth depend on our doing or leaving undone while alive what we are commanded to do in the name of the unseen powers as causes of belief these various circumstances are most powerful as rational grounds of it they carry no weight at all that what is called the consoling nature of an opinion that is the pleasure we should have in believing it to be true can be a ground for believing it is a doctrine irrational in itself and which would sanction half the mischievous illusions recorded in history or which mislead individual life it is sometimes in the case now under consideration wrapped up in a quasi-scientific language we are told that the desire of immortality is one of our instincts and that there is no instinct which has not corresponding to it a real object fitted to satisfy it where there is hunger there is somewhere food where there is sexual feeling there is somewhere sex where there is love there is somewhere something to be loved and so forth in like manner since there is the instinctive desire of eternal life eternal life therefore must be the answer to this is patent on the very surface of the subject it is unnecessary to go into any recondite considerations concerning instincts or to discuss whether the desire in question is an instinct or not granting that wherever there is an instinct there exists something such as that instinct demands can it be affirmed that this something exists in boundless quantity or sufficient to satisfy the infinite craving of human desires what is called the desire of eternal life is simply the desire of life and does there not exist that which this desire calls for is there not life and is not the instinct if it be an instinct gratified by the possession and preservation of life to suppose that the desire of life guarantees to us personally the reality of life through all eternity is like supposing that the desire of food assumes that we shall always have as much as we can eat through our whole lives and as much longer as we can conceive our lives to be protracted to the argument from tradition or the general belief of the human race if we accept it as a guide to our own belief must be accepted entire if so we are bound to believe that the souls of human beings not only survive after death but show themselves as ghosts to the living for we find no people who have had the one belief without the other indeed it is probable that the former belief originated in the latter and that primitive men would never have supposed that the soul did not die with the body if they had not fancied that it visited them after death nothing could be more natural than such a fancy it is in appearance completely realized in dreams which in homer and in all ages like homer's are supposed to be real apparitions to dreams we have to add not merely waking hallucinations but the delusions however baseless of sight and hearing or rather the misinterpretations of those senses sight or hearing supplying mere hints from which imagination paints a complete picture and invests it with reality these delusions are not to be judged of by a modern standard in early times the line between imagination and perception was by no means clearly defined there was little or none of the knowledge we now possess of the actual course of nature which makes us distrust or disbelieve any appearance which is at variance with known laws in the ignorance of men as to what were the limits of nature and what was or was not compatible with it no one thing seemed as far as physical considerations went 
to be much more improbable than another and rejecting therefore as we do and as we have the best reason to do the tales and legends of the actual appearances of disembodied spirits we take from under the general belief of mankind in a life after death what in all probability was its chief ground and support and deprive it of even the very little value which the opinion of rude ages can ever have as evidence of truth if it be said that this belief has maintained itself in ages which have ceased to be rude and which reject the superstitions with which it once was accompanied the same may be said of many other opinions of rude ages and especially on the most important and interesting subjects because it is on those subjects that the reigning opinion whatever it may be is most sedulously inculcated upon all who are born into the world this particular opinion moreover if it has on the whole kept its ground has done so with a constantly increasing number of dissensions and those equally among cultivated minds finally those cultivated minds which adhere to the belief ground it we may reasonably suppose not on the belief of others but on arguments and evidences and those arguments and evidences therefore are what it concerns us to estimate and judge the preceding are a sufficient sample of the arguments for a future life which do not suppose an antecedent belief in the existence or any theory respecting the attributes of the godhead it remains to consider what arguments are supplied by such lights or such grounds of conjecture as natural theology affords on those great questions we have seen that these lights are but faint that of the existence of a creator they afford no more than a preponderance of probability of his benevolence a considerably less preponderance that there is however some reason to think that he cares for the pleasure of his creatures but by no means that this is his sole care or that other purposes do not often take precedence of it his intelligence must be adequate to the contrivances apparent in the universe but need not be more than adequate to them and his power is not only not proved to be infinite but the only real evidences in natural theology tend to show that it is limited contrivance being a mode of overcoming difficulties and always supposing difficulties to be overcome we have now to consider what inference can legitimately be drawn from these premises in favour of a future life it seems to me apart from express revelation none at all the common arguments are the goodness of god the improbability that he would ordain the annihilation of his noblest and richest work after the greater part of its few years of life have been spent in the acquisition of faculties which time has not allowed him to turn to fruit and the special improbability that he would have implanted in us an instinctive desire of eternal life and doomed that desire to complete disappointment these might be arguments in a world the constitution of which made it possible without contradiction to hold it for the work of a being at once omnipotent and benevolent but they are not arguments in a world like that in which we live the benevolence of the divine being may be perfect but his power being subject to unknown limitations we know not that he could have given us what we so confidently assert that he must have given could that is without sacrificing something more important even his benevolence however justly inferred is by no means indicated as the interpretation of his whole purpose and since we cannot tell how far other purposes may have interfered with the exercise of his benevolence we know not if he would even if he could have granted us eternal life with regard to the supposed improbability of his having given the wish without its gratification the same answer may be made the scheme which either limitation of power or conflict of purposes compelled him to adopt may have required that we should have the wish 
although it was not destined to be gratified one thing however is quite certain in respect to god's government of the world that he either could not or would not grant to us everything we wish we wish for life and he granted some life that we wish or some of us wish for a boundless extent of life and that it is not granted is no exception to the ordinary modes of his government many a man would like to be a croesus or an augustus caesar but has his wishes gratified only to the moderate extent of a pound a week or the secretaryship of his trades union there is therefore no assurance whatever of a life after death on grounds of natural religion but to any one who feels it conducive either to his satisfaction or to his usefulness to hope for a future state as a possibility there is no hindrance to his indulging that hope appearances point to the existence of a being who has great power over us all the power implied in the creation of the cosmos or of its organized beings at least and of whose goodness we have evidence though not of its being his predominant attribute and as we do not know the limit either of his power or of his goodness there is room to hope that both the one and the other may extend to gratifying us this gift provided that it would really be beneficial to us the same ground which permits the hope warrants us in expecting that if there be a future life it will be at least as good as the present and will not be wanting in the best feature of the present life improvability by our own efforts nothing can be more opposed to every estimate we can form of probability than the common idea of the future life as a state of rewards and punishments in any other sense than that the consequences of our actions upon our own character and susceptibilities will follow us in the future as they have done in the past and present whatever be the probabilities of a future life all the probabilities in case of a future life are that such as we have been made or have made ourselves before the change such we shall enter into the life hereafter and that the fact of death will make no sudden break in our spiritual life nor influence our character any otherwise than as an important change in our mode of existence may always be expected to modify it our thinking principle has its laws which in this life are invariable and any analogies drawn from this life must assume that the same laws will continue to imagine that a miracle will be wrought at death by the act of god making perfect every one whom it is his will to include among his elect might be justified by an express revelation duly authenticated but it is utterly opposed to every presumption that can be deduced from the light of nature End of Theism section 6 Recording by Sunny Shields Doha, State of Qatar, June 2011